you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 84. And for those of you using the Black Pew Bibles, Psalm 84 can be found on page 461. We're studying Psalm 84 because as a church we work through sections of scripture. So this is just the next psalm in our study through book three of the five books of the Psalms. So it's a series of teachings that we have submitted ourselves to voluntarily, not forced, not instructed anywhere, but rather deciding in God's wisdom and providence that we will camp out for several weeks in book three of the Psalms. If you're a guest or visitor with us, welcome. I'm glad that you're here today. Our practice is to center our entire worship service around the passage of Scripture that has been chosen for that next sermon in the series. So if you pay attention to the songs we sing and the scriptures we read, they all should have reoccurring themes and concepts and phrases. And so my hope is that I will help explain and clarify the entire time you've been spending together with us in worship is related to God's word in Psalm 84. I want to read the psalm, but before I do, I want to read a short selection from a book that was written by a professor at Calvin College, James Smith. This is a conclusion to his book about walking on the road with the Bishop of Hippo, Augustine. And he's trying to take lessons of navigating through the biography of this third, fourth century Christian theologian. And in the very conclusion of his book, as they get to the end of the road and the end of Augustine's life, He writes the following. The road is life. Well, the road is long enough to tempt you to believe that the road is, in fact, true life. It seems for many of us like there will be no end in sight, that we can't get to that last thing, can't even glimpse the end, can't even imagine rest. Therefore, despair is natural. Running faster won't help. Crumpling into the middle of the road and giving up doesn't really solve anything either. And just simply telling yourself the road is life over and over again starts to ring as a hollow consolation. You can't get there from here. But what if someone came to you? You can't get to the very last thing, but what if the last thing came to you? And what if that thing turned out not to be a thing but a someone and what if that someone not only knows where the end of the road is but promises to accompany you the rest of the way to never leave you or forsake you until you arrive this is the god of the christian scriptures who runs down the road to meet prodigals god's grace is not high speed transportation to the end of the road but it is the gift of his presence and the rest of the way that he walks with us. It is the remarkable promise of his son who meets us in the distance. My father's house has many rooms. There is a room for you in the father's house. His home is your end. He is with you every step of the way. I felt like this short selection from James Smith summarizes what I hope you will take away from Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a pilgrim psalm for those who are on the road aiming their destination to be none other than God himself. 
and he promises to be with us every step of the way. Let's see if that's what you find as we read together Psalm 84. Follow along as I read a psalm of Korah. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valleys of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain is also The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And that'll end our reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. And my prayer is that he will write its truth on our hearts. Amen? I think there's various ways to try and summarize and organize Psalm 84, but my attempt to simply walk us through this psalm is to say that this psalm teaches us three things, and you'll notice this by the repetition of the word blessed. Just follow along. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house and ever singing your praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then finally, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I think there's three main sections, and I think each of these blessing statements are telling us what this psalm is trying to teach us. So, if we were to put it this way, Psalm 84 teaches us, first, the destination of the blessed place. Second, the desires of the blessed people, and third, the decision to take the blessed path. We will look first and foremost at this destination. Psalm 84 lays out for us the destination of the blessed place. Then secondarily, we will see that the people of God, those who are on the right road toward this blessed destination, they're marked out by their desire in their heart. Blessed are those whose heart are the highways to that presence. And third and finally, the decision of trust. The decision to put your trust and hope in the Lord on the path that he has laid out for us. Let's take them one at a time first. Psalm 84 teaches us the destination of the blessed place. And it's not just the first stanza, although it is, I think, heavily concentrated in verses one through four, but really the entire psalm teaches us of this blessed place place. 
Starting in verse 1, how lovely is your tabernacle, is the literal phrase, your dwelling place, the place of God's presence, O Lord of hosts. It is lovely. How lovely is God's presence. Verse 2, my soul longs for, yes, faints, for the destination of the courts of the Lord, meaning the place where God's people gather together in his presence, in his tabernacle temple. And there we sing for the living God. Verse 3, notice the contrast here. This is a contrast between the person who is longing for the place and the sparrow who has found that place. Even the sparrow finds a home. So what is this place? It's a home. It's a place of settledness, of peace, of lying down, a nest for herself and her young. And where is that place? In the altar of the Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Verse 4 gives us the fourth instance in a row in the first four verses of telling you that there is a destination for the people of God and that destination is in God's house. Blessed then are those who dwell in your house. It doesn't end there, even though it's heavily concentrated in the first four verses. Verses 5 to 7 make sense only when you realize that the reference to Zion in verse 5 and the reference to Zion in verse 7 is none other than the place where God's temple tabernacle was. So it's reaffirming the idea. Blessed are those who have in their heart the desire to go on the highway to the place of God's presence. And then finally, that beautiful and amazing text in verse 10 I'd rather be in your courts for one day than a thousand anywhere else. I could pick any place on the earth and for a thousand days for the trade-off of one day in your presence, God, I'll take one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a servant. I'd rather be a slave. I'd rather just be a nobody if I could be near God's house than being a prized, prominent, bowed down to, respected person in the tents of the wicked. A little bit outside of God's temple versus I'm right in the midst of where the movers and shakers are in this world. Where would you rather be? And the destination is quite clear. The psalmist lays out for us The destination of the blessed place is the presence of God. Therefore, I want to ask each and every one of you to reflect. Do you realize that your trajectory in life will be in large part determined by your end goal, your destination? Or if I were to put it in a question, where where are you going in life? You're going somewhere. Do you realize that? If, if you're a student, high school student, college student, you're going to school, why are you going to school? Because you have a goal, a destination for graduation, for p- p- hopefully promising some kind of skills for a job, a life that's a- ahead of you. If you're pursuing a marriage partner, love, you have a destination, a goal, and you're saying, I want blessedness. If you're checking the job market and frivolously, constantly checking LinkedIn and looking for Indeed.com for jobs and all kinds of different opportunities, there's something in you because there is a goal, a destination that you are headed to.
And all of us should be able to use God's word here and do some mirror-like reflection. Is your goal God? Is heaven for you? Is the state of blessedness not merely some sort of worship service, but the presence of the Almighty God, not the activities of church, but the God who brings the church together. Did you come here today because of the goal of God? Do you realize that the gospel is, in short, God himself? The end goal for all things should be for your map in life. That's the destination. And all of us will stray and wander If our heads are down and we can't see where we're going, we need to put our heads up and realize the goal is the blessed place of God. And if you do any self-reflection, my hope is that all of you, not just some of you, all of you, will be able to admit we're not there yet. Just like this psalmist, we haven't arrived. If you're going to come up to me after church today and say, Well, no, Pastor Phil, I've arrived. I've made it. Forgive me if I have deep cynicism in my tone or my heart. We haven't arrived. The reason we're striving, I think the reason you all are here is because you know that deep down in your heart, we're not there yet. We haven't arrived. And don't kid yourself as the opening selection I read to you is saying, well, the road is life. It's just about being on a journey. And then that is the arrival. No, the Bible would say. There is something to progress toward in all of our lives and in all of the world. And so do not believe the lie that the road is life. The road is pointing you to a destination. And we need to admit this because there's an irony about this text and this truth in God's word. When people are willing to admit that they have not yet arrived which they should be willing to admit. Through that confession, they're actually starting to get closer to experiencing home even when it's far off. Let me say that again. When we're willing to admit that we're not home yet, that will be the first and most important step both to ourselves and to confess to others for us to actually start to experience home now and point us in the right direction as we seek the true home in God's presence. Which brings us to this second key theme. If the home and the presence of God's place is the obvious takeaway that we are supposed to have as our direction God's near presence. The second thing that jumps off of the page right in verse 2 of our psalm is the longing for home, the angst, the feeling of not quite being there yet, wanting like homesickness. I want to go back to that place where everything was safe and good. Verse 2, my soul longs for, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. In point one, we've established that there is a place, a blessed place, and it is the aim and destination, I believe, of all humans that they have been made 
In the image of God and therefore stamped on them is eternity and eternity alone will satisfy the deep longings of their soul. And the reason that you are running the rat race of life, the reason you are doing the decisions that you are doing every day is because you're headed somewhere. The question is, is it God? And so therefore, what we want to be able to do is look around ourselves and look down in ourselves at our own desires. As I mentioned, as a mirror, is your heart longing for, yes, fainting for the courts of the Lord, your heart and flesh wanting to sing for joy in the presence of the living God? Do you envy the sparrow, as verse 3 describes, or the swallow who has a nest? I was thinking most recently about this picture of my youngest daughter, who's three. Any of you parents or those of you that have served in children's ministry, have you noticed that sometimes there's this blissful naivete of little children that they're home and they're contented about playing with toys. And in this one particular moment in a recent day, I was a million miles away from home in my head and in my heart. I was troubled and concerned about various things. And there sat in front of me someone that was just home and at peace and restful. And in that split second of a moment, I said, oh, how I long to be where she is right now. Oh, how I long to just be able to know that I can be in the Father's presence and all would be well. Do you know what I am describing this sense of looking out at the, the birds and the sparrows, looking at a young child and saying, like, what, what do they have to worry about today? Not much. And this is what I think verse 3 is saying. They, they find a home. They nest themselves, none other than in the altar of the Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Oh, why do they get this home now? And my heart is longing for that house. I think the answer comes when we realize that it's the desire in the heart when confessed that this should be my end destination. And when I admit that I'm not there yet, then I find myself a community of people that we together long for this true heavenly home. This is what I believe verses 5 to 7 are teaching us. Blessed are, notice the way that we went from singular, first person, my heart, I'm fainting personally, to we collectively. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the highways designed. That's our key verse for point two. We established that the whole psalm is pointing us to the end goal destination of God's near presence. Not just the general presence of God, but the nearness of his presence. Here in verse five, blessed Statement number two, blessed are those, blessed are the collective people whose strength is in God and in whose heart is the highway, whose desire and longing is to be in God's presence. So I think very practically, you and I need to realize that we need to admit and confess we're not there yet. We haven't arrived in our maturity, our character development. We've not arrived because we've sinned and fallen short of God's standard of holiness. We have to admit and confess that we aren't putting our lives out in front of others as we go to church and say, I've got it all together. 
No matter how well we dress ourselves up or put on our makeup, we we are not those who have it all together. And only until we're willing to admit that we're not home yet, then we will experience the blessing, the blessedness that comes from a community of people that say, our heart is the highway to heaven. I think that this is the very nature of what it means to be a part of God's people. A people who all admit we're not there yet. And it's that very admission, that simple confession that somehow strangely warmly brings us even now in the midst of the valley closer to his presence. This is what I think verses six and seven are saying. As they, those whose hearts are the highways to Zion, deep down in their soul, the collective people are admitting we're not home yet, but we're, we're striving toward God Verse 6 says, and as they go through the valley of Baca, this is not a historical place. This is a poetic description, the valley of weeping, the valley of tears. As they go to that end destination of God's presence, they must go through the valley of weeping. But when they do so together, they make it a place of springs. Do you see, see the beautiful word picture that's being given here? The valley of weeping, the downward trajectory that the only way to go up to heaven first requires the admission of sin and the confession of your lowliness and the willingness to die to yourself. Until you go down first, you will never rise up. And it's in that going down together that we can take the tears of our repentance and the tears of our sin and the tears of the sorrows of this world and create for it a pool, a swimming pool is created from the valley of our tears. One that brings joy and refreshing. He takes our sorrow and our mourning and he turns it into joy. This is what verse 6 and 7 are teaching us. We go from a place of weakness, and in our weakness, God is our strength, verse 5 says. Blessed are those whose strength is not in themselves, but is in you, God. And that's why he says in verse 7, they go from strength to strength, because they're walking in the strength of the Lord and not on their own wisdom or understanding. The people of God are those who have desires for the end destination, and they know that the only way to get there is to go down in confession of sin, in humbled repentance, and willingly say, I need a community. I need a people to do this with. Pilgrimages are not done by singular people. The pilgrimages that are described here in Psalm 84, if this is a a Zion psalm as it's been described, is a pilgrimage headed toward Jerusalem. They, They traveled in packs, entourages. You do it together. And this togetherness is what I mean by the people are longing in unity for this home. And we're strengthened by one another as we strengthen each other in God's strength. So do you see the paradox? Do you see that in your moment of confession, in your moment of weakness, in your willingness to admit, I'm not home yet, that's the very place where your weeping can turn into a swimming pool of God's joy and grace. Oh, I hope and pray that many of us will understand that this is the entire reason why you're here today at church. Because we believe there is a heavenly destination, we want to be those kind of people that right now, already now, can have a sense of God's presence in the deepest and darkest valleys and own it, admit it, 
but it will require humility. Are you willing to humble yourself and open your mouth and share, I'm not there yet? That could happen one-on-one. Most of the time, that's one of the most appropriate situations for these kind of confessions. It could happen in a group. You don't have to get into all the specific details, but just say, I'm struggling. I wonder, would you all like to be a part of that kind of church, or is that too honest for you? Would you rather be a part of a church where everybody just acted like we're already arrived? Just kind of a little book club where we're all just kind of agreeing we've all already got it figured out? Or are you coming here because you want to be encouraged and taught and given hope because we're struggling? The angst deep down inside is not the kind of fainting and longing of being like, as the deer pants for streams of water. Oh, that's so sweet and beautiful. No, the deer is panting because it's thirsty. It's in a desert in a wild wasteland. This Friday, I was gathering together with some of these college students that are here in front of me, and I was telling them, church should feel a lot more like walking into the hospital waiting room than it should the waiting room of the job interview. Do you know the difference? When you walk into the hospital waiting room, everybody understands. Oh, they're sick. That's why they're here. And they're sick. That's, that's why they're here. I should make sure I don't get too close to them because they're sick. And you're looking around. I wonder what they have. Ooh, that doesn't look good. That's what the hospital waiting room experience feels like. Go walk into the ER today. Now, if you sit in front of a group of people that are all waiting to be called in for their job interview, what does that experience look like? Hmm. Well, she looks rather nicely dressed. I should have worn different shoes. She doesn't look too bright. I feel better than her. It's judging and assessing and measuring yourself up. How am I going to do? Versus Jesus. We all need him. He came for the sick and the sinner. He did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It is necessary for us to realize that Psalm 84 points us not just to the destination, but the right posture and desire of the heart of God's blessed people. Blessed are those whose strength is only in the Lord and not in their self-righteousness or their resume or their good deeds or their good looks, but in God. The strength to maintain the journey is found in the people of God as God pours out his Holy Spirit. So I would practically encourage you to come to church that preaches the gospel. If it's not this one, find a church that gives you God's unadulterated, unapologetic word of truth. And come because you know yourself to be one that needs to be reminded, yes, that's the destination. More often than not, you're not going to find it in the evening news. You're not going to find it in your social media feed. You're not going to find it in your social group of friends that are outside of the church, your neighbors, co-workers. You will find this kind of encouragement only in the assembly of God's people as we gather together and say, our true north star is the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Praying together, longing together for God to strengthen us every step of the way. This is, this is the desire of God's people, to be in his courts 1,000 years anywhere else. We say, my longing is even just one day in his courts. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a servant, a nobody, than have all the fame and glitz and glamour that the world could offer for a thousand years. Be the most well-known American in human history, 
versus the nobody that everybody forgot as soon as you died. But you were around God's presence here, and as soon as you died, you were ushered in forever. Is that your desire? If it's not, I would encourage you to re-examine your entire life. And I don't mean that as an overstatement. You're headed somewhere. Is it headed to the true destination that you were made for? God himself, his presence, his goodness. In order for any of us to head to the right destination, we have to make, third and finally, a decision. A decision to go on a path. Verse 6 made it, I think, very simple. A decision to go down before we head up. But look at verse 10. The decision to be a servant of God rather than a slave to the sin that occurs in the tent of the wicked. And finally, verses 11 and 12. The decision to take the path that is least traveled of uprightness, of goodness, of righteousness and justice, and that all being undergirded by this third and final, I think, concluding blessing. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who fully, wholeheartedly puts their trust in you. Have you made that decision? If you're a guest or visitor, I'm glad that you're here. If we've never met, my name's Phil, and my job is to encourage you to make a decision today. My job is to tell you that you should decide either for the first time or the thousandth time. I have decided to put my faith and trust in the God of the Bible. I have decided to put my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And I will follow the path of his word and his counsel and his wisdom. And I will do that because I trust he knows better than I do. I make that decision in full awareness that when left on my own, I make a big mess. Decision after decision after decision, I look back and I see, what have I gotten myself into? But those who turn, turn from their sins, turn from their self-reliance, and put their faith and their trust in God through the person of Jesus Christ, they will find his presence already now, even on the road. His presence guiding them and directing them to the end destination. And to summarize our entire psalm with the beautiful message of the entire gospel, I would like to encourage all of you, regardless if this is your first time ever hearing the Bible taught or your thousandth time gathering into God's presence with his people. I want to walk through the entire psalm, and I want to do so in a way that helps you see why you should trust this God, why you should make this decision. And it's pretty obvious, because every single verse in Psalm 84 is dripping with themes and concepts that our Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, personally fulfills. Starting in verse 1. Notice, Psalm 84 tells us, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. How lovely is your tabernacle, Lord of hosts. Is there anything more lovely than not just a place for God's presence, but the fullness of God in a person who in John chapter 1, verse 14 says that he tabernacled. He, Jesus, the Son of God, tabernacled among us. The New Testament scriptures say that the lovely dwelling place of the Lord of hosts is fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. We know that according to John 1, the incarnation of the birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the dwelling place of God and man, full heaven and earth overlap in one human being. That is the person of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us this person, if he's fully fulfilling all of the scriptures, finding their yes and amen in him, and he's not come to abolish the law or the prophets or the Psalms, but lives them out in his life, then do you have a story that comes to mind where even as a young boy, he tells his mom, shouldn't I be in my father's house? Think now of Luke chapter 2, verses 42 and following, when the young boy at the age of 12 just can't get enough of the temple of God's presence. His soul faints, longs for, and desires to be near his father. Shouldn't I be in my father's house? That's how he responds. I don't know what tone he had. He was sinless, so he was probably respectful. Mother, surely you know. My, my true place on this earth is meant to be in God's house. Verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her head. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The psalmist is, in, I think, an exasperation. How come we're still not home yet? Even the sparrows have a home. The same thing is told of us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had the home of heaven and he forsake it. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but when the Son of Man comes into the world, the world rejects him, and he has no place to lay his head. He experienced the homelessness that you and I have in our weak flesh. He knows what it's like to be far from home and not quite there yet. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise as was just read for us, Jesus himself taught as he stood on a mountain, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Those who will experience the blessing of God's house here in this life are those that are going to admit themselves to be poor in spirit, and then, and only then, will theirs be the kingdom of God. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart is the highway to Zion. Jesus Christ tells for us in John 1.51 that he himself is the ladder, the highway, the staircase that takes us to God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are the highways. Blessed are those whose strength is found when your heart understands that the highway to God's near presence is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Read John 1.51. The Son of Man is God's ladder stairway to heaven. Do you have the Lord Jesus in your heart? Do you understand that only by becoming weak and meek will you inherit the earth? This is the true blessedness. Verse 6 says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs and the early rain covers it with pools. Jesus is the way, the highway, but he goes through the valley. He does not become our ladder until he first descends down into the valley of weeping and is buried in a grave. His tears 
He did weep. His tears became a swimming pool of God's grace for us now even in the valley. Verse 7 teaches us that they go from strength to strength as each one appears before God's face. Jesus, in his incarnation, was relying upon the strength received from the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit step by step. And even in his weakness, he demonstrated for us true strength, true greatness. But even stronger from strength to strength was his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation and ascension to heaven. Who's the strongest human being that exists in the universe? Answer, the ascended Lord. How did he get there? From strength to strength, relying and trusting on the Father every step of the way. I won't say a word, I won't take a step, and I won't do anything unless it is by the will of the Father. This is what I mean by Psalm 84. Every verse, every step is pointing us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you weren't convinced how about verse 8 and 9? O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your Christ. Look on the face of your Christ. That's the word anointed. Jesus, not his last name, but his title is the Christ. Look on the Christ. They're praying in Psalm 84 for an anointed king who would become for the people of God as they're in the valley of darkness, a shield for them. So look on favor to our king. Do you think Psalm 84 verses 8 and 9 was answered as the Lord Jesus Christ became our shield for us? As God looked at his face as he ascended right to his very throne and offered for the Father his full sacrificial death on a cross and said, will you receive this? And if you will then I will become the shield that protects them from all dangers, toils, snares, the devil himself. God's anointed is our shield. And the prayer of Psalm 84 verses 8 and 9 is answered when Jesus Christ, God's true and final anointed, becomes our shield as he stood in our place, hung on the cross. And probably most importantly, verse 10, who would rather spend a day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere? Who would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked? If given the choice between sin and the presence of God, Jesus always chose the latter. He wanted God, obedience to his Father. He'd rather starve in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, then bow down to the serpent, the devil. He'd rather be a servant or a slave in his obedience to the Father than disobey and dwell in the tents of the wicked. He'd rather give up and lose all of his power than take one single step off the path that God laid out for him. He'd rather suffer the worst pains on earth than sip on the fleeting pleasures of sin as they were offered to him time and time again. He'd rather drink the cup of God's wrath than take a single lick of the sin that's offered. He'd rather lie down buried in the grave for three days in service to his master and his God who judges justly than live thousands and thousands of days on earth being one who is served 
Jesus. He's the one who makes the choice, the decision, in our place, first before any of us, willingly losing and giving up all the riches of heaven so that we who are poor would be made rich. He'd rather empty himself, as Philippians 2 says. Empty himself than account equality with God something to be grasped. The path that we must take is following in the footsteps of Jesus. He'd rather give his life as a ransom than save his life. Is that you? Is that the decision that you are making today? Jesus rather die on a cross in obedience to God than live in a palace. That's what Psalm 84 verse 10 is teaching us. He'd rather give away everything because there is true blessedness in giving than receiving. This is Psalm 84, step by step, verse by verse, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As verse 11 describes, for the God of the Bible, the Lord God, he is a sun and a shield, and he bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did he not hang on a cross and cover himself with darkness, remove from that cross, and be buried into a tomb and experience the utter darkness of death so that he could become our S-U-N son, the light that bursts forth the darkness of this present evil age. The son of God was fully covered in the darkness and it's because of that that he is the Lord God, a son and a shield, so that he could give favor, that's the word in Hebrew for grace, to us. And then you would know because God gave us his son, there will be no good thing that he will withhold. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. If he didn't spare his own son, if that's what the father's like, how will he not graciously give you everything that you need for the path on the road, even down in the valley, as you make your way to the highway of heaven? The answer is rhetorical. Of course, he gave you the biggest thing. He gave you the most prized thing, the most special thing that he had in heaven, himself, his own son, and said, if you need the son of God, I will give it gladly. And he did. Therefore, you should have confidence to trust this God. Blessed is the one who trusts in that God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, only because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross do we have any right to claim your near presence in this gathering. Only because of the full righteousness of Jesus' active obedience can we approach your throne of grace boldly. And because it has already happened, the finished work is already done. We come now and we pray. God, give us your grace. Bestow upon us your favor and your honor. Help us to receive your blessed life, even now in the valley. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to trust you, put our hope in you, 
rightly reorder our desires to the end goal destination of your presence. Lord, I pray that many of us would be able to leave here today and forsake sin, put away things that are preventing us from even now experiencing the blessedness in this sin, suffering, cursed world that we live in and help us to have partners and brothers and sisters that are journeying alongside with us, admitting together, we're not home yet. We've not arrived. Oh God, humble us. And we pray that all of these things would lead to you being magnified and praised and glorified as we rely upon your strength and your might and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.